Well, my name's Jeff Olkowski. I work in two different areas here in the church. I work in the area of young families, trying to help people in that stage of their life just stay grounded in the, in the deep things of Christ and let the rhythms of the gospel play out in their life instead of the rhythms of this world. And another area is discipleship, and I would really appreciate your prayers. We're just living in a time where some of the ways we've discipled over the years were great when the ecology of our culture supported our discipleship structures in the church, but that's not the case anymore. So I, I really covet your prayers for wisdom and, and how do we create an ecology or a culture here at Church of the Apostles that can withstand the current climate that we live in and produce people who love Jesus and love each other well. Amen. I want to take a look at a passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 5. And the title of today's sermon is, When Knowing Nothing is Everything. I'm going to give you the answer right after I read this text, so you can just check out right after that. So, here we go. Hear the word of the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers... Do not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We prayed the Lord's Prayer today. One of the things we prayed was, Lord, lead us not into temptation. And oftentimes we look at that prayer or we pray that prayer and we think the typical temptations that seize us are that are according to our base desires, money, sex, power, those sorts of things. Lord, help me not to be overwhelmed with greed or lust. But there's one temptation I think we can often overlook in the church, and that is the temptation for us to put our faith, to put our trust, to put our hope in an institution, in a gifted speaker, in a super pastor, in a denomination, in a Christian heritage, an author, in an artist, in a blog, in a movement. It's very easy for us to elevate those things higher than Christ. And they get to the point where our filter for Christ becomes those things. But the fact of the matter is, is that in this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't want people to put their faith, their trust, their hope in him in his abilities, in his capacities, in his wisdom, in his knowledge, in his power, in his persuasion, in his leadership, in the sense of his ability to be that alpha leader, to really get things done and make the church of Corinth bigger, better, more than any other church in the city or around the community. The Apostle Paul is warning them that this will obscure from the simple message of the cross. You see, when we know nothing except Christ and him crucified, then we have everything. That's the answer. I'm going to let you know that the greatest hermeneutic for your life, 
for everything that you do, for the job that you work, for the family that you live in, for the children that you raise, for the grandchildren that you're trying to influence, for the neighborhood that you live in, is to live in the hermeneutic or with the filter or the engine that drives you day in, day out, moment by moment, breath by breath, minute by minute, is Christ and him crucified. The man and the message transforming our lives. This is, this is good news to the world that is weary and tired of super people being able to get a lot of stuff done. How do we keep Christ and him crucified as the hermeneutic for our lives? How can we keep this as the engine that drives our lives? And the first thing that Paul talks about is right here in verse one and then again in three, he says that he didn't come to speak with lofty speech or wisdom. And in verse three, he goes on to say, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. The first thing that we have to do is we have to accept the weakness of God's messengers. Accept it. You're a messenger of God. You need to accept your weakness. You need to walk in weakness and in humility and in fear and in trembling. We're not here to impress anybody else with our incredible wisdom, our apologetics, or our capacity to speak or organize thoughts. Because when we do so, we begin to obscure the message of the cross. We're not there to impress people with our personal power and our achievements. Because when we do so, we obscure the message of the cross. And what Paul is saying to these Corinthians is, I don't want to obscure the message of the cross. Ironically, this is not to say that Paul was not eloquent or wise. This was not to say that Paul couldn't have persuasive speech. I mean, you have to think about Paul for a moment. This guy wrote the vast majority of the New Testament. We know by his writing skill that he was fluent in Greek. He was somebody who grew up in the city of Tarsus. It was a Greek area that was influenced highly in this, in this space. He was influenced and trained by Gamaliel. Gamaliel was actually more of a liberal scholar. He also taught his rabbis not just to study the Torah or the Jewish law, but Gamaliel also taught his scholars or his students to understand Greek philosophy and Greek wisdom. So no, more than, no doubt or more than likely, Paul was very familiar with Plato. He's more familiar with Socrates, Aristotle, He's probably very familiar with Demosthenes and many other philosophers. This, this, it's not like he didn't have this capacity, this, this intelligence, this wisdom, this, this ability to persuade. He chose not to do and use this power that he had to draw attention to himself. Christ was his focus. He wanted Christ to be big in his life. He didn't want to be big in other people's lives. One thing I get concerned at is when I see leaders whether they be in the church or outside of the church, when they're trying to draw followers after themselves, when they want to sell you their books, when they want you to listen to their tapes, when they want you to go on their podcast, and it's not about Christ. It's more about their platform, building up their capacity to influence, oftentimes is a good motivation, but who are they trying to influence people for? For Christ or for their own personal gain? You see, he doesn't want people to be impressed with him. He doesn't want people to put their faith in him. You see, this was the Corinthians' problem, was it not? We know if we just turn the page back that the Corinthians were having problems 
because they were claiming, for example, in verse 1 and 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And then he makes this statement, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see, in those days, when you were baptized into a certain school, you became a follower of that certain person. And so those Corinthians were thinking, hey, if I'm baptized by Paul, I'm going to become a follower of Paul. And what is he saying? He's saying, hey, listen, I wasn't crucified for any of you. Please don't, don't give me this honor. I don't even care about baptizing. All I really care about is preaching the message of the cross. But even more importantly, perhaps, is even living out the message of the cross among them in weakness and fear and in trembling. Imagine this for a minute. Just imagine if Paul was looking for a preaching job in our modern day church. What would his resume look like? Can you imagine what the search committee would think when he says, I, I'm weak, I don't use lofty speech, I don't have much wisdom from man's perspective in what I say, I'm not your alpha leader who's going to make your church grow, I'm not going to save your organization, I'm not going to make your institution great, I'm going to teach you how to lay down your life, I'm going to teach you the way of the cross, I'm going to teach you how to suffer for Jesus Christ's sake. He would not be hired in the modern 21st century Western church. He would be dismissed outrightly. You think about this for a moment. Friends, we, we, we have such models in our culture that, that we are called to follow. We, we swim in a soup of arrogance and pride and, and, and just being able, the ability to kick Fanny and take names. But that's not the type of leadership that our Savior has. You might remember when he wanted to show his disciples what true leadership was like, what did he do? Right before he was crucified in his greatest moment, in his greatest hour of suffering and anguish, he got down. He said, I'm your Lord and your master. I'm your teacher. It's true. But then he washed their feet, which was the lowest possible thing he could possibly do as an example of what true leadership was. Now imagine this, you're walking on your way to be betrayed and two of your closest disciples come and they start arguing amongst with the other disciples, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit at your right? Who's going to sit at your left? And what does Jesus say? What does he say to them? He says, oh, you are thinking like a Gentile ruler. The ruler of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. They exercise authority over their followers. Not so with you. If you want to be the greatest of all, you become the least of all. If you want to become the leader, you become the servant. I'm telling you, I'm getting to a point where I've walked with the Lord enough, where enough's enough. Does that make sense? I want to smell Jesus on people. I want to smell Jesus in the church. I want, to, I want that sweet fragrance of Christ, that aroma of Christ to come. And it comes through the, the sacrificial gift of laying down your life and letting Christ rise up in the message and in our hearts as we model that message in our lives. You see, many problems arise in our faith when we perceive people as being spiritual or having their stuff together. Why? Because when those leaders, when those institutions fail us, and we've seen it, have we not seen it? Time and time again, this whole deconstruction movement is happening because people put their faith in institutions and leaders. 
Some of these leaders actually preached a good gospel, except their lives didn't match up or model in any sense or any way of what they were speaking. I'm telling you, when I, when I sense that, that's, it, it, it troubles me. It troubles me. You think about Jesus for a moment. Here was the holiest, holiest person ever to walk the earth. Agree with that? Was anybody more holy than Jesus that's ever walked the earth? Yet sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes felt very comfortable in his presence. Let that, let that sit with you for a moment. Religious leaders who knew the Torah, who could quote it backwards and forwards, didn't feel really comfortable with Jesus. So, friends, I'm telling you, uh, this is what Paul is trying to communicate. Look, we serve a crucified king. The greatest power of God that ever was displayed was in the cross. In the cross. We know this from Colossians 2. It It says that Christ triumphed over the powers through the cross. He made a public spectacle of them, putting in them to display. Christ conquered the powers of heth, hell, death, and the grave through the cross. And if we want to conquer those powers, we need to live in the message and be congruent with the, as his messengers. Second thing we need to do is embrace God's foolishness of God, the foolishness of God's message. God's message is, is absolutely foolish. I don't know about you, but have you ever read this and you're like, really? Like crucifixion, death on a cross? He, he, the Lord understood that this would be something that would be rejected. It's why he was rejected. He wouldn't play the part that they wanted him to play. And that part was to, to go into Rome, I mean, sorry, go into Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman authorities with power and might. He even told Pilate, I could call down legions if I wanted to. Thank God he didn't. Our God is a paradoxical God. If you want to live, you need to, you need to die. If you want to be rich, you need to become poor. If you want to become something, you have to make yourself nothing. It's so counterintuitive to the way our culture is, is it not? But this is who Christ is. This is who Paul is. Paul says, follow me as I follow the greatest wise leaders of the Roman Empire. As I read this new book on how to be even a more effective and more productive leader. So I try to bring this into my team so that we can be, build our brand and make it greater? Now he says, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. The foolishness of God's message is, is that there's a cross. It's why Paul resolved to know Christ and be crucified because it's the crucifixion where we get the greatest miracle. His stripes bring us healing. His death brings us life. His punishment brings us deliverance. His chains, as it were, as he was nailed to that cross, brings us freedom. Wow. What a paradoxical, strange message. I've shared the gospel with with many Muslims in my life. And the thing they get tripped up over is, how in the world could God ever? First of all, they don't believe that God has a son. But but 
even if he did have a son and Jesus was the perfect man, which they actually believe according to the Quran, Jesus was sinless, God would never put a righteous man on a cross and crucify him. Had to be, had to be somebody else. Had to be Judas that was actually crucified. God must have taken Christ straight up to heaven, right? But what does Paul say in verse 1 and 18? For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Let's not, let's not be mistaken here. We see power in a lot of different places. I'm looking forward to the day when the, when the church has no resources and power of its own in the West. I'm just being honest. And we can come to that space where we truly have to rest in the power of God and the message of the cross. The church is, is growing in China and parts of Iran and Iraq and the Middle East and Asia. It's a powerless church. I'll never forget a time I was in China in 1999 and we were seeking to plant some missionaries over there who were really effective at campus ministry. They, they reached a lot of uh, Chinese-speaking people at the University of Georgia and disciple, were discipling them. We went over there, and I met an underground church believer. And as we were talking to him, he happened to be a, a professor at Beijing University, but he was in prison for his faith for 20 years, and you could see in his body that he suffered greatly in prison. And I said, what, you know, what, how can we help you? And you know what he said? He said, whatever you do, don't send money. I said, why not? He said, because if you send money, our people will put trust in American money. Just pray for us and send us Bibles. Now, I'm not, if you're supporting missionaries over in China, please don't uh, withdraw your support at this current time. <laughs> it's not what I'm suggesting, okay? But I'm, I'm just trying to make, illustrate a, a point here. Friends, we, we, we need to come uh, to the point where we really trust the work of the gospel. There's a book by Rodney, Fink and, Rodney Stark and Fink. I forget Fink's first name, but it's called The Churching of America. You can get it on Amazon. It was, it's about 30 years old. I don't think it's out of print, though. They studied church movements in America even before the Revolutionary War. So it goes back, I think, as early as the early 1700s. And they wanted to find out why did churches fail? Which churches thrived and which churches failed? And what they discovered is that the churches that focus on two things thrive. The message of the gospel in the scriptures, they have a high view of scripture, and activism. In other words, the, the congregation lives out the scriptures in their congregation and in the community. Those churches thrived. If you remove one of those, the churches fail. If you remove the message, because a lot of churches will be active, but they take the message away. We see that happening all around us right now. They fail. But the flip side is, if you only have the message without the messenger embodying the message and living it out, the church fails as well. Because those churches end up usually hiring a very intelligent and trained church staff to do all the work of the ministry for them. And that, that's what Fink and Stark, that's the conclusion of the book. And what does, that, what does that say to us? It says we need to hold on to the simplicity of the message of the cross, that we serve a crucified Savior, that he laid down his life for us. What is the message of the cross? What is the gospel? 
It's really simple. I didn't come up with this because I'm not that smart. Randy Pope actually came up with this. He's a guy that we used to pastor in the Atlanta area. So the gospel is as simple as this. We lost it all. He did it all. We get it all. That's simple. We lost it all. We, 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 we sinned. We became sick. We became broken. He did it all. He paid the price. By his stripes, we are healed. He paid our penalty. And we get it all by faith. What a simple message that is. We receive it by faith. There's nothing we can do except believe in the goodness of God and what he's done for us. Romans 5 and 8, what a simple message. Yet while we were sinners, nothing we could do, Christ died for us. What a message. But that message, friends, listen to me, this is so important. This is the last point as I want to bring it together. That message can be obscured and blighted. That message can be overtaken when we don't live into the message. When that message does not take residence in our hearts, when we are prideful and arrogant and think we're better and wiser and more righteous and holy and moral than everybody else. So easy to become self-righteous, isn't it? I mean, am I the only one that's ever just like thought self-righteously before? Okay, I'm just making sure. I mean, I hope I'm in a room with a bunch of people that that struggle along in this this life to live it out with, with me. And so it's, just, it's amazing to me, but, but we, we, we need to begin to really focus on this, you see, because not only do we need to accept the weakness of God's messengers, not only do we need to embrace the foolishness of God's message, the paradox of it, we need to mesh in the message in the life of the messenger, right? So the Apostle Paul tells us very clearly that he said that the message was not in words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, I have to admit, I, I come from a Pentecostal background. And I used to interpret this passage being like, man, if we just start raising people from the dead, you know, and recover the sight to the blind, then people are going to believe. Friends, that's not true. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Everybody saw it. You know what the re- response was of the people during that day, the leaders? We ought to believe in Jesus. I mean, there's evidence right before our eyes. That guy was dead for four days, so much so he stinketh, (laughs) right? No, what did they say, guys? We need to kill Jesus. This is getting out of hand. Oh, and by the way, we need to kill Lazarus too. You see, only God and the simple message of the cross can engender faith in the human heart. It's not our wisdom. It's not our power. It's not our grandiosity. It's not our superhero Christian men and women that we put up on a platform. It's the message. And the message has a messenger. And the messenger ultimately is the person, ministry, and work of Jesus Christ. You know what helps me a lot to understand God the Father? is to look at God the Son. What did he tell Philip? Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his being. Think about Jesus for a minute. Think about our messenger, the foot washer, the one who said we need to be a certain attitude, right? You know the Beatitudes? 
We need to be people that mourn with those who mourn. You think about a lot of people that are willing to literally surgically change themselves. How hurt are they on the inside? Can we weep with these people? Can we mourn with these people? We, 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 need, to, we need to be meek, use our power to help and elevate other people, not so that we can become more powerful. We, we need to bless those who persecute us. We need to pray for those who despitefully use us. We need to be peacemakers. Would that be somebody that someone else would recognize you as a peacemaker? This person, when they come into a room, they bring peace in the midst of difficulty. Right? These are the Beatitudes. These are, this is what Christ is calling us. This is the message of the cross. We lay down our lives. We, we, get, we are crucified. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Think about the good Samaritan. His willingness to, to help somebody that was his enemy. It's easy to help our friends. It's hard to hurt, help our enemies at times. So let's mesh it because that's where the power of God comes, you see. In this weakness, in this brokenness, in this frailty, in this willingness to do things the Jesus way. Remember the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness. Oh, here's a huge one. Self-control. Be careful before you make that post. Right? And, and what attitude you make that post with. So easy to tear down. So hard to build up. You see, the Corinthians, they loved gifted speakers. They loved logicians and rhetoricians who use the latest techniques, the figures of speech, clever analogies, and heart-pounding stories. They wanted the best. They wanted the brightest. They, they had these people called super apostles, if you read 2 Corinthians 11. Walking in among them, they were, they were smart. They, they knew how to speak. They, they knew how to raise funds. They were great. And Paul said, I don't want to be like that. I want, I want Christ to be big in my life so when people see me, they don't see Paul. They see Jesus. You see, there's nothing wrong with some of the things we do to enjoy worship, but when worship becomes, becomes more about the talent, more about the lights, more about the technology, more about all these different things, when it obscures the message and the messenger, there's a problem, right? When you walk away, here's, here's a litmus test for you and for me. When you walk away from a church or a, a ministry or, or a meeting that you've been a part of with other Christians, what do you walk away with? Is Christ bigger in your heart, bigger in your mind, or were you more impressed with what happened in the meeting rather than Christ? Does that make sense? And that part of that's our problem, not just what's being produced, because a lot of times I have to be honest with you, I have to go into places and be like, okay, despite the jokes and the clever stories and the analogies and all the different things I'm going to hear right now, I want to hear from Christ, and I have to weed through it all, right, and stop looking for anybody except Jesus Christ. Am I the only one that has to weed through a lot of that stuff and like try to lock my brain in? Do you know part of worship is not just having the, the people who, who can't get, and I'm talking in a worship service now, gather together, be prepared, but we need to be prepared. Our hearts and minds. I mean, what do we do on Saturday night? 
If we're out partying on Saturday night, we're probably not going to do well to receive on Sunday morning. If we're working on a project early Sunday morning before we come to church, rather than praying and asking God to prepare our hearts, we're probably not going to be prepared on Sunday morning, right? So my challenge and encouragement to you and to me is is that we prepare ourselves well. Friends, the last thing I want to just leave us with is this. And this whole idea of meshing the message and the messenger together. That's you and me. That's any pastor or any author or any musician or any sort of Christian person that we, we admire in our lives. Let's make sure that the, that the messenger and the message are meshed to the point. And I used to hate this. And my wife knows this for sure. She knows I used to hate this. I used to hate when people say, used to say this phrase attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. You're, you're probably going to know what I'm about to say. At all times and by all means, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. As somebody who street preached and used to walk up to people, knock on doors, I hated that. Of course you've got to use words. But now that I'm getting older, I understand the importance, the importance of living out the gospel in our lives, living out the message of the cross, the crucified Christ. So that when people look at us, they're able to see something different other than what they see out in the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord, let your message and the messenger of that message, our Lord Jesus Christ, be the engine or the hermeneutic by which we live our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.